Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come to this story recognizing in so many ways it's our story. And so would you help us to hear your word today, that you speak to us? Would you help us to receive your truth, that you would help us to live under the truth, the authority of your word? And so God, would you speak? Would you guard my words that they would come from you alone, that any words that come from my flesh and my strength would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but that your words would remain, that they would be planted like seeds in our heart, and that they would grow up and bear much fruit. And so God, do your work in us as we submit ourselves to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, it was... Several years ago, maybe many years ago now, um, I got a phone call, actually it was an email, from a couple who wanted me to do uh, some premarital work with them and ultimately perform a wedding ceremony for them. Uh, they weren't a part of the York Alliance body. That happens a lot where people want me to step in and do a wedding ceremony, and it's, I always answer the same way, the same way I would answer to somebody who's part of the body. Come in, and we'll kind of walk through. I'll get to know you a little bit. You can get to know me a little bit. And I'll walk you through what's required of getting married here because um, it's much more complicated to get married here than it is, for instance, to go to the courthouse and have the justice of the peace do the wedding. And so I want to make sure that you're aware of that and kind of walk through the process. So that's what we did. They came in and uh, sat down, and I got to know them. They got to know me. They told me their stories. They were uh, both... Uh, they, they both stated that they were followers of Jesus, and uh, they talked a little bit about their faith and the way that their lives have come, come together, and then I kind of explained what was required. I walked through, here's, uh, here's the counseling requirements, and here's the books that you read, and the work that you need to do, and uh, all of the different pieces that come as a part of that. And one of the things that I tell every couple that comes through, and for some it's more difficult than others, but I unpack for them... Uh, one of the requirements is that I'm going to ask you to follow what I'll just simply call a biblical sexual ethic between now and the time that you get married. And uh, for some, depending on their housing situation or what their background has been, that's really, really difficult. And for others, it's not as difficult, but that's the standard for everybody. And so I said that, and they didn't really look surprised. I, didn't, I thought maybe they would, but they didn't really look surprised. And so I said, so uh, we, we don't need to answer now, but I'd love to hear what you guys think. And so they looked at each other and said, we actually, we talked about it, and we figured some of the things that you were going to be saying. And so um, we, we think that we're really good with uh, the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing, but not the fourth thing. I was like, okay, well, this isn't actually a multiple choice test. <laughs> you don't get to, it's actually E all of the above is the way this works, right? Uh, so I, I, I said, well, let, talk to me about that a little bit. I mean, obviously, their housing situation made it a little bit complica complicated. And so I said, you know, we can, like, provide ways for you to uh, be housed separately for a period of time as you get ready for, like, is that part of the problem? No, no, we just decided that we're not going to do that. And I said, well, you guys are people who've said that you want to follow Jesus, right, or that you're following Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah, we love Jesus, we're following Jesus. Okay, so does that mean that you would disagree that the, the way the Bible teaches about your sexuality calls you to a certain standard? No, 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 we know that's what the Bible says. So if you want to follow Jesus and you know that's what the Bible says, um, why don't you want to do it? Well, we've just decided we're not going to do it. 
And we got to an impasse, because what do you say, right? Um, it, it, we, we got to this place of like, I, we, we understand what the Bible says, but we don't really care what the Bible says. This is what we're going to do, and this is the way we've chosen to live. This is what we're going to do. And it wasn't so shocking to me because that was their position. It was shocking to me because they said it out loud. Because honestly, a lot of us hold that position. We just hold it quietly, right? Like there's certain areas of our life that we live according to our own way rather than the way that God would lay out before us. But we don't make the statement out loud, I know what God says, and I've chosen not to follow him in that. Like, whoa, it was, it was disarming. And so I commended them for their honesty and then told them somebody else would have to marry them. That's kind of the way it's going to work, you know? What, what do we do with the authority of Scripture? The Bible as spiritual authority. For some of you, that's a, um, an abrasive term already because the whole idea of authority is difficult for us as a culture uh, to get our arms around. Um, how, how do we handle the Bible as spiritual authority? Well, that's what I want to try to engage today as we've talked about the Bible as meditation literature and as story literature and as, as formational, not just informational. I want us to talk today about what it means to put ourselves under the authority of Scripture. And so we're going to take that story, and we're actually going to take the story that, of Jesus that you just heard and look at the uh, preceding story. That's actually the echo of another story. Matthew, as a gospel writer, is a brilliant writer. If you were with us a few years ago, we did a long journey through the gospel of Matthew. It took, I don't know, three or four years or something. Uh, and what we saw over and over again is just how brilliant Matthew's writing was. And Part of what Matthew did in Matthew chapter 4 is intentionally echo another story. So we're going to look at two stories that show authority, two different ways to engage authority. So two authority stories. Then we're going to look at the nature of spiritual authority. What is it and what isn't it? And then what it means to live under spiritual authority. So two authority stories, the nature of spiritual authority, and then living under authority spiritual authority. So if you're in Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to stick your finger there and flip back to Genesis chapter 3. I told you last week we're often back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because it's really the key to so many different stories, and uh, Matthew 4 is no exception to that. Genesis 3 is the interpretive key to Matthew chapter 4. Um, so let me just set the stage for you. Most of you are familiar, but in uh, Genesis 1 and 2, God created all that is, including Adam and Eve, and they are there in, uh, in the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Eden is really representing what uh, the Hebrews referred to as shalom, uh, the, the perfect peace, but not just peace, absence of war or violence, but um, peace in terms of connectivity and, uh, and freedom before one another. There was nothing between God and Adam and Eve. There was nothing between Adam and Eve themselves. There was nothing between Adam and Eve and the creation that they were called to steward and to uh, take authority over. And there was nothing in their own hearts. They were at one with themselves, peace uh, with themselves. It was perfect shalom at the end of Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 3 to the reader would have been kind of almost jarring. So listen as I read, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That would have been a jarring start because that word crafty in English is a Hebrew word that can be translated both intelligent and devious. 
and the author is trying to hit both of those things. So uh, you have this perfect shalom, you have everything as it should be, and we're introduced to the serpent who is incredibly intelligent, but also very devious, and he is there in the midst of the garden. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what's going on here? Um, I think too many times we can come to this story with the idea that Adam and Eve are in the middle of the garden and they're hungry for apples, right? They're just, they're hungry and they want something and this specific fruit is tempting because they're hungry, they want to eat. But that's not at all what's happening here. As you read through the narrative, what you see is that the serpent is stepping in and the temptation that she's giving, that he's giving to Eve is not about food at all. It's not about eating, it's about trust. Can God be trusted? Did he really say that you should not eat from anything? Are you sure he said that? And then when she replies, oh, you won't surely die. He, he just doesn't want you to be like him. Can God be trusted? The core of the serpent testing Eve is whether she is going to believe that what God says is true or what that little voice in her head says is true. Whether she thinks what's good is defined by God or by what she feels in the moment. By whether her emotions and her situation determine what's good or whether God's timeless truth determines what's good. When you think of it from that perspective, we live right in the middle of a Genesis 3 story. Maybe this time, more than any in recent history, is, uh, is defined by this idea that you and I determine what's good and evil and right and wrong based on how we feel in the moment, based on the situation that we're in. It's impossible for me to say whether that thing is good or bad unless I'm in that situation. So therefore, there's, there's no standard by which we live. That was a Genesis 3 story. Did God really say that that's good? Can God really be trusted? At the core, Eve's sinful choice was not about eating an apple. It was about trusting God. St. Ignatius of Loyola defines sin in a way that I think is really helpful. He says this, Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Does God really have my best interest in mind? Can I trust him? At the core, what Ignatius is saying, and what I would affirm that Genesis 3 is also saying, is that um, at the core, sin is me believing that I know what's better for me, and God doesn't. 
that my situation in some way or another is unique. And God's timeless truth, God's word, God's statement of what's true doesn't take into account who I am, doesn't take into account my situation. What I feel, what I long for, what I'm desiring in the moment is a a clearer statement of reality and I know better than he does. God can't be trusted. And at the core, submitting to the authority of the scriptures is really a question of trust. Do we trust the God of the universe to know how reality really works? In Matthew chapter 4, we have the retelling of the same story. The voice comes in again. Did he really say? Are you really the Son of God? And as Satan comes to Jesus to tempt him in that same way, the underlying question is, can you trust God? What's Jesus' response? Well, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy, back to Satan. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And then Satan uh, figures out the game pretty quickly, right? So by the second temptation, Satan's like, oh, we're going to do the the scripture quoting thing. So he actually quotes uh, Psalm 91, takes a passage a bit out of context, as as happens, you know, and says, well, the Bible says it is written that you will not strike your foot on a stone because the angels will come and and take care of you. And Jesus says, "Eh, that's out of context. And he goes back to Deuteronomy and he says that you shouldn't put the Lord your God to the test. And then the final temptation comes, the final declaration that Jesus makes out of Scripture says uh, to worship God and him only, and Satan disappears. Here's the question. What happened there? Because most of us, I think, instinctually believe that Jesus resisted temptation, that he's just tougher than you and I are. Like the reason he survived and the reason we don't survive, the reason he survived and Adam and Eve gave in is because Jesus is just of of stronger stock, you know, like he can handle it. And so he's resisting temptation. He's standing up to Satan. And so he's he's coming in and, and he's exerting his strength, the strength of his will. And I'd like to make the argument that that's not what's happening here. But also it's not the fact that he's simply declaring the word. Many times when this passage is taught, it's just simply said, declare the word. We need to know the word and speak the word. Well, I don't believe that Jesus is uh, using the word like a magic spell that's like um, temptation comes in, speak Deuteronomy 6, boom, that's gone. That took care of that, right? And then uh, Satan comes in and he's like, Psalm 91. And Jesus is like, I'll raise you Deuteronomy 6 again. Boom, it knocks it right down, right? I don't think it works like that. I don't think it's that uh, Jesus is just reciting scripture and in some way the recitation of scripture is dissolving the temptation. What's actually happening? I would like to make the case over the next little bit here that what Jesus is doing is trusting in the power and authority of God by trusting in the scripture. And that we're invited to do the same thing. That when we enter into the truth of the scripture, we actually enter into the power and the authority of God, the fullness of who he is. We trust in scripture as a way of trusting in God. Now let me try to unpack that. So let's first talk about the nature of spiritual authority. What, spirit, what, what is spiritual authority? And for most of us, again, authority is a 
tough subject. Um, authority can be pretty tricky because we kind of chafe against authority, particularly, uh, I was going to say my age and generations younger than me were known as to a bit of anti-authoritarian. I think it's ironic that we're known that by the generation that grew up in the 60s. So anyway, you take with, do that what you want. But anyway, uh, I, I think all of us are um, pretty anti-authoritarian at the core. There's something in us that doesn't like to be told what to do. So when we have uh, a government elected that we don't like, we don't want to be told what to do by that government. If we are in a classroom and there's a teacher over that classroom, we don't want to be told what to do by that teacher. If we're in a workplace and we have a boss, we don't like being told what to do by the boss. We don't like being told what to do by our parents, particularly if they're not as smart as we are, which is the case of all 15-year-olds, right? That's the way it works. So like, at all times, we don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be uh, told by those in authority how we're supposed to act. And all of those examples could be uh, classified as positional or structural authority. And all I mean by that is that you're in a position where you have authority. So whether a parent or a boss or a teacher or a governmental official, you're, you're in a position where you naturally have authority over those who are under your authority, right? They're, they're, um, there's a, a, a hierarchy and you're above them or they're above you in the hierarchy. What's fascinating about spiritual authority is that it's it's not positional. In fact, you could argue Jesus had no positional authority, no structural authority. You might be able to argue that he had a bit of structural authority over his disciples, and that was, that was really it. He, didn't, he wasn't in those positions. But spiritual authority doesn't work that way. Spiritual authority is effectively a statement of what's true. So spiritual authority is not about being in a position over and holding those in submission under, but rather it's a statement about how reality works. So let me give you an example. Um, Jesus makes the statement, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. Now you hear that, and you think in terms of a command, I'm supposed to take up my cross and follow him. But Jesus didn't command you anything. What Jesus said was, if you want to be my disciple, you need to take up your cross and follow me. He's simply making a statement about how reality works. It would be like me coming to you and saying, if, you want, if anyone wants to be healthy, they need to eat more than just candy and chocolate. And you would say, well, I want to eat candy and chocolate. Like, I, I deserve to eat candy and chocolate. I like sugar better. And just because you like french fries and buffalo wings doesn't mean that you get to dictate whether I get to eat candy and chocolate. But see, what I'm saying is not that you need to command you to eat a certain way. What I'm saying is, here's the way reality works. If you want to be healthy, you can't eat candy and chocolate. That's just the way it goes. You have to eat more than that. You have to eat other stuff. I, I'm not commanding you. I'm not... I'm not coming down on you. I, I'm not saying to you, this is, the, this is my rule that you have to live in. I'm just making a statement. This is the way reality works. Jesus would say things like, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He's not saying you have to be first or last or make a decision where you're going to be in the line. He just says, here's the way reality works. First are going to be last and the last are going to be first. Jesus says, you can trade the entire world and then lose your soul. It's just the way it works. So you, you, you have this opportunity to choose. I'm not telling you what you have to do. I'm not commanding you. I'm just saying, if you're going to get the whole world, you're going to lose your soul. 
And if you're going to invest in your soul, you're going to lose the world. That's just the way, that's the way reality works. The spiritual authority of Jesus, the spiritual authority of the scriptures, is standing in reality. This is the way reality works. So then how does that translate to the scriptures? Because the scriptures are a, a, a unique and specific expression of the word of God in the world. So there's a, an excellent essay by a guy named N.T. Wright. Some of you know uh, N.T. Wright, Professor Wright, uh, wrote this essay, and it's simply called, how, I think it's, how, the, how Can the Bible Be Authoritative? Really excellent essay. It takes 15 or 20 minutes to read. Well worth your time. Really, really good stuff. Uh, one of the cases that, uh, that Professor Wright makes in the, uh, in the essay is just a, a simple line of logic. And his point is, and I think we need to grab hold of this, authority doesn't reside in the scriptures per se. The scriptures are not the God that is authoritative, but God himself is authoritative. So the first point that he makes is that all authority rests in God, who is by his very nature authority. So when we say that we're submitting to spiritual authority, we're submitting to the spiritual authority, not of the scriptures per se, but of the God of the scriptures. So all authority rests in God, who's by very nature is authority. Second, that God who created all that is has always, from the beginning all the way through until now, has given, vested his authority to specific people, and those specific people do specific activities within the community of faith, and there was a period of time that those specific people wrote the scriptures through the power and authority of God, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so what Wright would say is all authority rests in God, who's by his very nature is authority. People have been given authority, vested authority by God. They write the scriptures. So therefore, when we trust the scriptures, it's a way of trusting God. You follow the logic all the way through? So the point is not that the, the Bible is to be elevated and it's the thing that we need to worship, but rather it's the recognition that the Bible comes from God who himself has all of the authority and is giving all of that authority to us. Uh, that's vital for us to get because as we come to the scriptures and we begin to ask the question, how do we live under spiritual authority? We need to recognize that the spiritual authority, the, the power comes from God himself and he has given to us his word so that we would live under spiritual authority. But the question still remains, how do we live under the Bible? Especially because we've said from the very beginning, this is a story. More than any other single uh, kind of literature, this is a story. How do you live under the authority of a story? Well, um, Wright explains it in a way that I think is compelling. Imagine if there was a five-act play, we'll call it a Shakespearean uh, masterpiece. There's four acts that are clearly written by Shakespeare, clearly documented. You know that th that's Shakespeare's work, but the fifth act has gone missing. Nobody knows anything about it. All we know is the first four acts. How would you understand what the fifth act is? 
Well, you would understand that potentially by studying those first four acts and by method actors getting in and understanding, like, what's the motivation for these people and how are they living within this story? How does this story shape them? And then improvisationally living out that fifth act on the basis of the first four acts. So they begin to live into the story under the authority of the story because the story is what's driving the story that's being written. Uh, And in the very same way, the way that we live under the authority of Scripture isn't necessarily because God is saying as a command, do this and don't do this, but rather the story is starting to form and shape us in certain ways because of the truth of the Scripture. Now, let me try to explain that a little bit more because that can be a really slippery, uh, slippery topic. Some rules, because of story and the way that story unfolds, change over time. So there are rules that are true at the beginning of the story, ways that God operates at the beginning of the story that, uh, that are different than the way God operates later on in the story, not because God has changed, but because the story has changed. So let me give you a, a simple illustration. When my kids were little, one of our rules in our house was you don't just go eat whatever you want whenever you want. You ask us if you're going to eat something. So, mom, can I have a pack of crackers? Mom, can I have a soda? Those are, those are, and then sometimes we'll say yes and sometimes we'll say no. That made perfect sense when our, when our kids were little. But imagine in their 30s if we get a phone call. Mom, I want to know if I could have a pack of crackers and a soda. <laughs> We've done something terribly wrong, right? Like, what's, what's going on here? Why? Because the rule is bad? No, it was a good rule. But the story's changed, right? As, as, as we've grown and as we've developed, the story's changed. So you go back into the Old Testament and you see certain rules, certain laws that were necessary at that point. But now Jesus comes and he says, I'm not coming to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And one of the ways that that happens is as our final and complete sacrifice. So now those earlier laws, they, they don't operate in the same way. But the story still forms and shapes. The same heart that God used to give us those laws, that same heart is still there, just that the story has continued to develop. So how do we live under the authority of a story? Well, let me show you a quote from Wright that may be helpful. He says this, story authority is the authority that really works. Throw a rule book at people's head or offer them a list of doctrines and they can duck or avoid it or simply disagree and go away. Tell them a story, though, and you invite them to come into a different world. You invited them to share a worldview, or better still, a God view. That actually is what the parables are all about. They offer, as all genuine Christian storytelling does, a worldview, which as someone comes into it and finds out how compelling it is, quietly shatters the worldview that they were in already. What Wright's saying is, as we live in the story... We engage the worldview of the story, the heart of God, and as we engage the heart of God, we can begin to see the the way that he's calling us to live. Now, that may feel slippery for for a few of you, and it comes back to this idea that the scriptures are, are given by God and therefore authoritative out of his authority, but your interpretation and my interpretation are not authoritative. That's the challenge. It's a challenge that we run into all the time. So the, the, the interpretation 101 doctrine is what was the authorial intent? Who's the author? Who was the audience? What was the situation? What did they originally intend? So you have, um, for instance, a, 
uh, a command in the New Testament that I'm sure all of you engaged as you came to church today, because it's a command for the church as the church gathered. And that command is, greet one another with a holy kiss. So I'm sure that was happening in the lobby, right, as you come in, just kind of kissing one another all over the place. Like, if, if there's somebody who comes in and just starts kissing everyone and says, but I'm fulfilling scripture, we're going to have a, a disciplined conversation that may lead to arrest, right? Like, there's something, there's something going on here that's not appropriate. And, and we all know that, except that that's what the Bible says. Like it's really clear. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So what are we supposed to do? Well, the heart of what's being written, authorial intent, within that culture is that as the church gathers, everyone should be invited in, and there should be a place of hospitality, a place of peace, where people are welcomed and engaged. And so now, 2022, greet one another with a, a firm side hug, right? Like, that's, that's, that's good. That's great. Just like, give a little, there you go. Whatever, whatever the case is, you're, you're not walking around and kissing everybody. And if you do, we're going to have to talk, right? Like there's a problem. Because there's an interpretation that's needed where we get down to the principle. In the same way, as we unpack the story, we begin to understand the heart of what God's saying. And then, through interpretation, are able to submit ourselves to him. Now, it is true that interpretation has been a challenge at times over the last 2,000 years. However, let me make what I don't believe is a very controversial statement, but maybe difficult for you to get your head around. While we have disagreed in the church over the last 2,000 years on some points of interpretation, the church has largely agreed on just about everything, and where we disagree they tend to be very small, secondary issues, and where we rebel against the authority of God, it's always against what we all agree is true. Like, the, the areas that we really struggle with are not the, the, the side areas. They're the core areas. And the reason we struggle with them is not because we don't interpret them right, it's because we don't like them. It's like, that pushes against what I want, or what I like, or what I prefer, and so therefore, I'm going to choose not to do it. It's the couple that I told you about at the beginning. The issue is not an interpretation issue. The issue is a submission issue. The issue goes back to that quote from Ignatius. Do I actually believe that what God wants for me is best? Do I believe that the Father loves me and that as he sees reality, remember the definition of spiritual authority, as he sees what is true, he's inviting me into what's best. And when I believe that, it's much easier for me to live under the authority of the scriptures. So some of you know, Amanda and I uh, were traveling for about two weeks uh, a couple weeks ago, and we left behind, um, with a bit of trepidation, three boys in the home. I mean, they're old and responsible and whatnot, but, you know, we're a little nervous, as Ethan stands right in front of me here, yeah, we're, we're nervous. But, but Amanda did a, a beautiful thing that maybe you would do if you were in the same situation, which was leave a bunch of notes, right? There's a bunch of like, like long 
information. Like, do this, don't do this, here's the way to go, um, here, here's some money to go out to eat when you don't have the right kind of food, here's some things for you to do when you're not sure what to do, do these things, clean the house before we get back. She didn't say that, I put that one in. Uh, so, like, all of these different things, right, they, they, they're all there. Are, are they there to be a, 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 an unnecessarily restrictive way to live? No. They're there to say, this is the way into life. And they're there because we're not physically there. And in the very same way, the scriptures are left for us by a loving God who's saying, I want what's best for you. And what's best for you is not for you to just figure it out, but for you to put yourselves under my authority, to learn my heart, and as you learn my heart, to step in the way that will actually bring you life. And so this week... I want to ask you to do a simple practice. Study the Bible. For some of you, study of the scriptures is not difficult. You've done that before. You enjoy the process. And I'm not necessarily asking you to bring in all kinds of other resources. I'm simply saying, study the scripture. That may be uh, one translation or a couple translations that you're comparing together. And most of the study process can be engaged with simply the scriptures itself. Just to to read through the scriptures. In some instances, a, a study Bible, like many of you have, that has notes in it will help you in the process. Um, and uh, as part of the podcast this week, I'll talk a little bit about some resources that are uh, kind of simple to engage resources, like all in one volume kind of resources that will be able to help the process of study. But I wanna encourage you to study, and what you're gonna find is that most of the passages that you're studying don't require Hebrew and Greek scholars to give you interpretations. They don't require people with a whole bunch of letters after their name to tell you what it says. That as we sit down and study, the majority of it, we can study and we can learn, we can understand. The challenge is, when God says, I want what's best for you, here's the path, walk in it, do we trust him? And that's the question I want us to meditate on as we leave. And so um, if you would just kind of set your stuff over to the side, and just take a minute, as we quiet our hearts, the team's going to come, and they're going to lead us as we respond. And I just want to ask that simple question, because I think for many of us, um, there's a, a place in our life where we just resist, where we know what God's calling us into. It's not so much that we have a conflict in interpretation. It's just that we're, we struggle with obedience. We struggle with believing that God actually wants what's best for us. And so if you would just settle your hearts, um, maybe close your eyes if that's helpful to you, just take a deep breath, and let's just be present to the Spirit, allow the Spirit to speak to you wherever you are. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and tell us what we need to hear? Call us back to you. God, I pray that you would give us the grace to push past all of the, the secondary issues and the what-ifs and to center ourselves on 
the heart of what you tell us, the things that are clear to us, that we would be people submitted to you, that we would live generously, that we would be people of love and grace, and that you would allow those truths to come into every aspect of our lives. So God, I pray specifically on one hand for my brothers and sisters here who um, are, are immediately have brought to mind an area of their life where they know they're out of sync with your, your authority, your truth, where they believe, without maybe saying it out loud, what they think, what we think is true of us is better than what you say, that, that we know better. And God, if that's the case, would you just give us the grace to come to repentance, to turn, to confess that as sin, to turn towards you and to receive what's better. And there's some maybe all the way on the other side of the spectrum who are just so excited to study the Bible. We're just like thrilled to be able to open the word and submit ourselves because we know that you're leading us into life. And God, for, for those brothers and sisters, would you give us the grace to be intentional, not just excited, but to set aside time that's specifically devoted to being in your word, to, to studying, to learning, to growing. And God, there's a lot of us that are in the middle somewhere. We have areas of our life that we're um, challenged because we know we may be out of step with your word. And there's areas of our life where there's a bit of excitement, but as a whole, we just feel kind of overwhelmed. And so God, would you meet us by grace in that overwhelmed spot and just speak life, call us back into what's true? And so, God, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your goodness, and we rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.